Good evening and welcome. And it is a special privilege for me to be here this evening because this is the second time that I've been invited to speak at Chazak. The first time, people don't really know. You, you get by on your reputation, what people may have heard about you, you know, etc. Um, I'm going to take my cell phone just now. No, okay. Um, maybe just we'll, we'll turn off our cell phones. Okay. Anyway, um, but when they invite you back, that means that they obviously thought you did a pretty good job. And if they invite you back a third time, so that'll be very special. So uh, I came the last time, and everyone said it was so you know, positive and funny and entertaining. So this time, they decided to give me a very somber, depressing topic. And I appreciate that, because it will be totally not fun at all. And then they won't invite me back anymore. And then I'll feel bad. But everybody else will grow through the experience. <laughs> so depressing. Anyway, um, you have to know where you are. You have to know where you are. My, uh, my father-in-law used to teach public school in Bushwick, and he said whenever I would teach geography, I always had to start from Puerto Rico. And he started to show where Puerto Rico is, and then you do all the rest of geography from there. Because you need a frame of reference, you know what I mean? And uh, if you come like from Israel, like I do, and I want to show my kids where we come from, I start by showing them this is Israel, and then here we are, and we go around that way, right? You need a frame of reference. So if you want to know where you are geographically, you use a map. If you want to know where you are in time, so you need a calendar. Where are we in time? We are in the saddest period of Jewish history. And we'll put this into perspective for us. Um, a week ago Sunday was the 17th of Tammuz. And that is a fast day, and that is the beginning of what is known as the three weeks of tragedy, concluding with Tisha B'Av, which is going to be a week from this Sunday. And uh, that period is known as the three weeks. Historically, what happened? On the 17th of Tammuz, the Romans after besieging the walls, the city of Jerusalem, for three years, broke through the walls of Jerusalem. This was an unbelievable tragedy, as you can imagine. They were killing and slaughtering mercilessly through the streets. The Jews were already exhausted from the famine. There had been plagues. There was civil war. Just any terrible thing you could possibly imagine. And now the Romans finally broke through the walls. But... If you ever take a look, you go to Jerusalem and you see the Temple Mount. So when you go to the Western Wall, you are standing in mid-air in, in uh, Temple times. There is as much of the Western Wall underground as you see up. It was all the way down. And it was a self-standing structure, and the Kohanim continued to defend the Temple as the Romans kept attacking. And eventually they broke through on the first of Av. That's this Shabbat. They broke through on the first of Av, slaughtered the Kohanim who were defending it, and desecrated the temple. Desecrated the temple. Titus took the paroches, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, and took a prostitute in order to be able to desecrate the temple in the worst way that he could think of. And after this whole process, three days of desecration, at the end of the ninth of Av, he set fire to the temple. The temple, like most of Jerusalem's stone, is made out of limestone. You can actually set fire to it. They set fire to the temple. It burnt through the night of the tenth and into the day of the tenth. And when you reach the tenth of Av, that was the end of this period. And then the laws of mourning come to a Halt, and that's what happens. Now, that's historically what happened. What's the ramifications? Uh, if you are of Ashkenazic origin, then during the three weeks, you don't listen to music. In fact, you heard music playing here this evening. It was a cappella uh, uh, music. They didn't have instrumentation. Um, they don't have weddings. I understand Sephardim do. We don't buy new clothing. Um, uh, Ashkenazim don't get haircuts. When you reach this Shabbat, which is the first day of Av, you enter into what's known as the nine days of the three weeks. Um, we don't eat meat. We don't drink wine. We uh, don't do any bathing 
for pleasurable purposes. Obviously, you can do bathing for hygienic reasons. Yeah? You reach the day before Tishabav. Now, this year it doesn't apply because it comes on Shabbat, but a normal year, the day before Tishabav, you have your last meal. You sit on the floor, you eat a piece of bread, you drink water, you eat an egg, which is a sign of mourning, dipped in ashes, and that's the last meal. Tishabav itself, there's no eating, no drinking, no washing, no anointing with creams or oils, no marital relations. And you can't learn Torah, you can't greet people, you can't sit on a chair, you're sitting on the floor like a mourner. It's a very intense time, right? And this is the three weeks, the nine days, Tisha B'Av, this is the saddest period of Jewish history, and it's one that most Jews have no connection to today. Now, when I say most Jews, I'm talking about, let's say, Myself, I grew up out in Long Island, suburban Long Island. My father grew up in Brooklyn, in Brownsville, and he moved out to Long Island. Not all the holidays made it out past the belt. A lot of them got lost on the Southern State Parkway. Shavuos, for example, never made it all the way out. Passover did, Rosh Hashanah did, Tishabov didn't. Tishabov got stuck somewhere on the Queens-Nassau border. And that's as far as it ever went, you know. So Tisha B'Av, we didn't really appreciate it. If you were to go to a service in one of the local synagogues, it was, they would, it was over very quickly. And uh, people went to work, and it was a relatively regular day. When I went to sleepaway camp, perhaps it was a little more intense, but I have to tell you the truth. Nobody looked forward to the nine days or the three weeks. It, was, it, it ruined your whole summer. Here you are, a kid in camp, you want to have a good time, and then all of a sudden, they take away the music. Then they start taking away the meat, and they take away the swimming, and they take away, you know, everything. Now, I went to a camp once, I'll never forget this. <clears throat> it was the 10th of Av. Now, we hadn't gone swimming in nine and a half days. And just before noon, they told everyone to go back to the bunks and put on your swimming suits. And we all surrounded the pool. And they did a countdown on the microphone. 10, 9, 8, 3, 2, 1. Yay! It's over. Thank God they burnt down that temple. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> now we can go swimming. Yoo-hoo! And everybody jumped in and they turned on the music and the music started to blast. And wow, were we happy that that temple was gone. You know? and, and the truth is that it's such a strange experience. I met somebody a few years ago who said to me, I don't mind the nine days. I like eating dairy. No, it's terrific. You know, you don't eat meat. Who needs it? You know, I like lasagna and pasta. Isn't that nice? I did a program on Tisha B'Av in Israel this year, in Jerusalem, this past, this past Tisha B'Av, and three people came up to me and said, thank you, Rabbi, that was so meaningful. I can't wait till next year. You know what I mean? So when you start looking forward to Tisha B'Av, when the day of tragedy and destruction becomes something of a red-letter day on our calendar, something's going wrong. Something's going wrong. And the fact is, and let's tell the truth, and that's what it really comes down to, how can I really mourn a building? I'm really sorry they burnt down the temple, you know, and, and I feel terrible about it, you know, and we should really build another one, you know what I mean? And here we have synagogues, we have temples, we have, you know, Jewish centers, we have, you know, yeshivot, we have, you know, all kinds of wonderful institutions, so we built another building. Okay, so in Jerusalem we don't have a building, but they have other buildings and yeshiv- yeshivas and, and synagogues in Jerusalem. So they burnt down the temple. I feel terrible, but do we really need 2,000 years later to still continue to mourn it? Well, okay, it's not just that we lost the temple, also we're in exile. Yeah, that's a big problem. I was speaking in Manchester, and it was supposed to be an Ask the Rabbi session, but somehow it turned into a Stump the Rabbi session, you know? You know how they do that sometimes, see if they can... Posing questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. So they say to me, Rabbi, we've been waiting so long for the Messiah to come. When exactly is he coming? And I said, really? You want the Messiah to come? So they were like, "Uh, yeah. I said, you do? You're about to get your driver's license. You're about to start university. You're supposed to get your whole life going. And you want to give this all up and move to Jerusalem? No, no. You don't. The Messiah's not coming because nobody wants him. I mean, bottom line, you know, they tell a famous story with this rabbi. You know, there used to be pious Jews who would get up at midnight and they would say what was called Tikhan Chatzos. 
Tikkun Chatzos was this special prayer you would say at midnight for the destruction of the temple. And there was a time when Jews took it very seriously and people would cry and it was a very emotional time. And this Rebbe is staying in an inn and uh, he starts crying. And so, thank you. And so the... Um, the wife wakes up the husband, who's the owner of the inn, and he says, there must be something wrong. The rabbi's crying. Go down and see what's going on. So he goes downstairs, and he sees the rabbi sitting on the floor crying. He said, Rabbi, what's the matter? He says, I'm crying because they burnt the temple and destroyed it in Jerusalem, and we're in exile. And I'm crying so God will have mercy on us and take us back to Israel. Oh, okay. So Gizabin tells his wife, well, he's crying so that God will bring all the Jews back to Israel. And she says, what? Bring all the Jews back to Israel. What will be with our, with our house? What will be with our farm? What will be with our chickens and our ducks? What will be with the cow? It's a good question. I'll go ask him. Then he goes down. The rabbi's sitting on the ground and goes, Rabbi, if we go to Jerusalem, what will be with our chickens and our ducks and our cow? What will be with our house? And the rabbi says, and what will be if the Cossacks get them? Oh, good point. So he goes upstairs and he says, he said, what if the Cossacks come? And take all of our chickens and our ducks and our cow. He says, so tell him to pray that God takes the Cossacks to Israel. You understand? <laughs> now there's a story and I'm sure it's apocryphal. I don't believe it. I'm sure it's apocryphal. It's something someone must... I, I can't believe it's really true. But somebody was supposedly in a shtibel. A shtibel is a synagogue without dues. In, um, in, in Borough Park. Borough Park is a section of Brooklyn that... Uh, this is a slightly Jewish area you may have come across. Anyway, so these two Jews are sitting in their shtibel in Borough Park, and one says to the other, Moshe, you're here. When Mashiach comes, all the Jews are going to have to move to Israel. He says, what do you mean, leave Borough Park? He says, yeah, leave our shuls, leave our homes, you know? I don't know what the big deal is about leaving their homes, to tell you the truth, you know? You know what you find between two homes in Borough Park? Another home, you know? <laughs> they say when it's hot, you know, you open the window, you reach across, open the next building's window, reach across, open the next building's window, you know? You know? But they have to, I had a friend of mine who works in windows. He said they had to get special fireproof windows in Borough Park because the houses are so close together, you know? So you got to leave our houses. We're going to leave our, our shul. How are we going to manage? And the other one said, Moshe says to him, no, we survived the pogroms. We've survived the Crusades. We survived Hitler. We'll survive Mashiach. <laughs> so that's a little depressing. But the fact of the matter is, you know, people don't really mind Gullahs so much. You know, I live in Israel. People come to visit. They say, you know, the apartments here are so small. I said, yes, it's true, they are. And it's hot here. I said, well, yes, it is. We don't have the pleasant sort of calm weather you have here in New York, you know, which it's never hot or humid. You know what I mean? You know? Yes, it does. And why is it so dusty? I said, I'm sorry, it's been deserted for 2,000 years and the girl only comes in once a week, you know what I mean? So she hasn't gotten everything yet. We're working on it, though, you know what I mean? Like, you know, today, today she's working on Manana, so we'll, we'll move around and clean up the whole country, you know what I mean? Like, you know? It's so dusty here. Why do you live here? You know? It's so nice here in America. Who wants to go? You know, it's, it's, and, and I have to let you in on a little secret. It is difficult living in Israel. Israel is not the easiest place in the world to live, you know? And, uh, and so you say, okay, so we really want Mashiach to come so we can all move to Israel. We can all move to Israel, and then we can build the temple. And then we can bring, once again, animal sacrifices. I've really been missing out on those. <laughs> I often think to myself, gee, you know, if only I could go and sacrifice a lamb. I would feel so much more fulfilled as a person. <laughs> and so, let's face it, this time of year is something to get around. So you're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to bathe for pleasure. But you can bathe, bathe for high... Now, I live in Israel, nobody really cares. But, uh, you know, they look forward to the nine days. And, you, know, you know, some Israelis, and I, don't, I hate to generalize, because I'm, I'm, I'm there 20 years now, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming an Israeli, you know. But a lot of Israelis don't get, get it. They think that if you put on, you know, um, like uh, cologne without bathing, that it does the same thing. So they put on a lot of it. So if you light a match, they burst into flames, you know. <laughs> don't quite get it. So nine days is not really such a big deal for them, you know what I mean? Like, you know, but... Um, 
but it's hard. It's hard. So, so people say, okay, well, you know, here in America, of course, you know, say, well, we have to bathe for hygiene. You know what I mean? I'm just going in for hygiene purposes. Ah. <laughs> and the hot water is just running down me. How hygienic. <laughs> you know. And that's the, uh, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is, this is a period of time to get through. We have to get through it. <sighs> Meaning? So, there was a fellow by the name of Moshe Sofer, who was better known as the Chassam Sofer. That was the book that he had written, the Chatam Sofer. And um, we're not going back that far. Late 1800s, uh, well, not really, early 1800s, I suppose, in Hungary. And they tell a story which is difficult for us to understand, at least for me, difficult for me to understand. Erev Tishabov, he would go into his office and he would think about the destruction of the temple and he would start to cry to the point that he filled up a glass with tears and at his last meal, sitting on the floor with his little bread and his little egg, instead of dipping them in ashes, he would dip them in his tears. And Rapinkus, who passed away tragically only a few years ago, he said, today if I went around with a glass, he was in Israel, to all of Jerusalem and B'nai Brak, would I fill up half a glass? We don't, we don't cry anymore. You know, they tell the famous story on Tishabov about, about uh, Napoleon. Napoleon, when he was in uh, the Holy Land during his uh, Egyptian campaign and he was going up, he was eventually, you know, defeated at Akko and he had to retreat. But uh, at one point he saw the Jews crying and he says, what happened? And he says, well, their temple was destroyed. He says, I didn't order any temple destroyed. He says, no, 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 it was about 1,800 years ago. He says, and they're still crying? says, anyone who could still cry over a building 1,800 years later will surely live to see it rebuilt. But no one's crying anymore. We're really not. We're, we're really pretty comfortable. Things are not perfect, to be sure. There are problems, there are tragedies, but we're not crying any tears over this exile. This exile is pretty good, you know? You've got unbelievable shopping. You've got everything kosher you could possibly want. The finest kosher wines, the finest foods, the finest everything. You know, beautiful houses, wonderful things. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, Rabbi Wine once told me, he didn't tell me, he was speaking to an audience and I happened to be in it. So I felt very personally involved. But <laughs> he said that he was, he was learning with a Rebbe, you know, in January down in Miami Beach. He says, we were learning in the backyard in like 80 degree weather, sitting under my grapefruit tree. And the Rebbe says, you know, this is gullus, but as gullus goes, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. You know, it's not so bad. And like I told you, you know, we, we go through this time, and who feels a sense of tragedy or a sense of loss? That's the problem. You know, I'll tell you what actually inspired this. Somebody asked the following question and to one of the Chazak staff. And uh, that was the whole impetus for this entire topic. A person says, listen, I hear these rabbis saying all the time, the, the geula is almost here. The redemption is around the corner. The footsteps of the Messiah are here. It's almost here. So what are we mourning for? It's almost over. It's almost over. Another month. Another two months. Another six months. Another year, two years. But it's almost over. What's the big deal? You know, they're rolling the credits. I don't have to keep watching as they're rolling the credits. It's almost over. Time to push the rewind button, for those of you who are old enough to remember VCRs. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's just DVDs. Just eject and stick it back in a little box. You know what I mean? But it, that's it. It's, it's, it's almost over. What's the big deal? And the what's the big deal is the question that we have to answer because we have to be real. And this is the terrible tragedy. Let me make this point because this point is so incredibly important. I went to, I was once a scholar in residence at a, at a Passover hotel. They made a big hotel kosher for Passover, and they invited me to be the scholar in residence. It was a fascinating experience. You know, I said afterwards I had a wonderful vacation. Unfortunately, I missed Passover. You know, Erev Pesach, the day before Pesach, usually you're preparing for the Seder and you're making everything, you're putting it together. And here the Erev Pesach activities were racquetball, swimming, you know, uh, etc. And they actually had me offering a shear. I was up against napkin folding in front of the dining room and, you know, I still managed to draw a crowd. And uh, they stumbled in, they thought we were folding napkins, you know. So, uh, so I said, okay, parents... This is the Passover Seder tonight, right? And you hear parents complain all the time. 
Uh, my kids don't listen to me. My kids don't listen to me. I talk to my kids, my kids don't listen. Right? Parents say to their kids, how come you don't listen to me? Kids say, what? You know what I'm Nobody listens. <laughs> Nobody listens, you know. Parents are so, are so, it's to come out, you know, with this sense of frustration. I said, well, tonight is the Passover Seder. You are commanded to talk to your children, and they're commanded to listen to you. We have something for everybody in this religion. You know what I'm saying? So tonight is the Passover Seder. And your children are waiting to hear what you have to say. Do you have anything to say? Have you given any thought to it? No. We go into the Passover Seder and we do the same Passover Seder we did last year and five years ago and ten years ago and twenty years ago. And I have the four questions. If a kid doesn't know how to ask questions, you have to inspire them to ask questions. Until finally the kid is inspired and they ask questions. Dad, why are we doing this? And the answer is, I don't know. Stop asking so many questions. That's the way Grandpa did it. You know? A tragedy. I had a friend of mine who was studying in a particular yeshiva, and he wanted to motivate his fellow students, so he put a question on the outside of his dormitory door. Whoever gives the best answer to this question wins a case of beer. Like I say, you have to motivate Torah scholars sometimes. And the question was, why? Why? So you got questions like, because... Or, why not? You know what I mean? You know, brilliant answer. Well, I said, so who won the case of beer? He says, the best answer anyone gave was to the answer, why? That's how they did it in Europe. That was it. <laughs> how do I know why? That's how Grandpa did it. Tradition! You know, what are you asking me for, you know? So, so, we, so they talk about there's a lawyer with 20 years experience and a lawyer with one year experience 20 times. And there are people who've had 20 Passover Seders and people who've had one Passover Seder 20 times. You know? So when we walk into this period of time, and if we don't understand, if it doesn't have meaning to us, if it's not relevant to us, then obviously if we keep it, it'll be just out of inertia, and the chances that our kids will keep it are growing slighter and slighter. You know? I didn't have this problem of deep philosophical issues when I was growing up. If I asked my mother, Mom, why do I have to go to synagogue on Yom Kippur? She'd say, shut up, stupid. And that was good enough for us. You understand? If it got really bad, my father would say, you want to be in the will? I said, I don't know. How much are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> okay, I'll have a bar mitzvah. <laughs> Today, people are like, tough. I got my own trust fund. I don't need you. <laughs> you know? Why? Why are we doing this? And if there's no explanation, there's no relevance. I talk to people about their Jewish education. I say, what was the worst part about your Jewish education? They said, it was so irrelevant. It didn't speak to me. It didn't have anything to do with my life. You know? Judaism spoke to something that was, that was make-believe. So I'm going to try to look at this period of time, and it's a struggle I go through myself. You know, uh, there, there are rabbis who are all the way up there. They are very great people. You know what I mean? And we look to them for inspiration. I'm not one of them. I'm just an average person like everybody else trying to find meaning in the things that we do on a regular basis. So I want to try to find a... <laughs> Is it something I said? <laughs> anyway... So I'm going to try to find, for myself, meaning something that perhaps we'd be able to share with all of us together that will maybe go into this tissue above and it won't be the same tissue above that we had every single year with a little luck. Yeah? There's a, the, there's a minor prophet. <laughs> a minor prophet. I don't know how you measure them, but there's a book called The Minor Prophets, The Twelve Prophets, The Treyasov. One of them is named Chagai. And Haggai was a prophet who prophesied between the destruction of the first temple and the second temple. And he sees that even though the Jews have received permission to rebuild the temple, they're not. And he says to them, what are you guys doing? Don't you see? You're old enough to remember when there was a temple. Did you notice that when you plant, you don't get the same returns you did when there was a temple? Did you notice that your clothes don't keep you warm the way they used to? Did you notice that wine, that meat, don't have the same taste that they used to have? Did you notice that when you make money, you tend to lose it? You don't hold on to it like you did when there was a temple? So the commentaries explain what Haggai is telling them. When there was a temple and we used to pour the wine on the altar, that's where wine got its taste from. 
When the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, used to wear his garments, that's where all garments got their power from. When we used to bring the meal offerings, that's how we used to have good crops. And etc., etc. All these things came out of the blessings that came from the temple. I have to tell you, just so you appreciate this, and, and we, we had today thunderstorms. Thunderstorms. Pouring rain. Which, of course, my kids who are Israelis always find fascinating because it never rains in the summer. Everyone knows it doesn't rain in the summer. You know, pouring rain. And I, I remember one of the kids stick their hands out the window and said, it's hot. It's hot rain. By us, it only rains in the, in the winter and it hasn't been doing too much of that. We, you know, the water in the Kinneret, in the Sea of Galilee, where we get most of our water from, fell beneath the red line, beneath which it is no longer safe to pump water. What did we do? We drew another red line. That's how we solve problems in Israel. And now it's almost below that, and it's heading towards the black line. The black line means that the water falls beneath the pumps. So they can't even pump it anymore. We're about to run out of water. It's very serious. And I'm sitting here watching these thunderstorms. I'm watching the water come pouring down. I tell you, we didn't have one day of rain like this in Israel this year. And the sages say, because when, you know, all blessing comes from the temple, and Israel is supposed to receive its share of rain, and if it doesn't, it just goes to the other nations. That's our rain that we were out there watching today. That was supposed to be in Israel. But we lost it. When you see what the world is supposed to be like, and this is what we don't understand, because we grow up with a world that's so second-rate that we accept it as being the way it's supposed to be. And that's the tragedy. Let me give you an example. Before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, right? So there was no death in the world. There was no death. There was no decay. Animals didn't go, there were no carnivores, animals didn't kill each other. This didn't exist. It was a world of such perfection, it's hard to believe. And let's take it a step further. These bodies that we have are not the bodies we had in the Garden of Eden. Don't get me wrong, they're all lovely. That's not what I mean. This is like dirt. Yeah, it's very thick, it's very heavy. The bodies that we had in the Garden of Eden is described as a glass filled with light. That means in our physical bodies... The angels were singing prayers to Adam. They thought he was God. The angels felt physical compared to human beings. That's the level we were on in the Garden of Eden. We ate from the tree. We dropped. We dropped dramatically. Death came to the world. But people still live seven, eight, nine hundred years. You know, it says it rained once in 40 years, and that was enough for everybody. That was enough rain for the whole world. Once in 40 years. It says that a baby came out already cognizant. Tells an unbelievable story, the Matrix says, this baby came out of the womb and he walked over to the table to get a knife to cut the cord. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. You know what I mean? It's a pretty frightening concept, yeah. After the flood, lifespan started dropping, disease came to the world, you know, things started to go down. When there was a temple, you're talking about the world existing in a better place. It means that you were in a world where blessing came, where, where the weather was the way it was supposed to be, where there was no hunger, no disease. When we did it right and we had the temple, these blessings came. It's unbelievable. They brought 70 oxen as offerings during the Sukkot holiday. And it says that was to atone for the 70 nations. And if the nations knew what they got from those offerings, they would rush to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But they don't know. They didn't realize it was coming from there. And once it disappeared, there was a time, and Josephus writes about this, in the time of the Second Temple, the Jews were considered the most beautiful people on the face of the earth. I still think they are, but not everybody else does. You know what I'm saying? But there was a time when we had such beauty, such nobility, we had such greatness, but we don't see that today. We don't know what that's like. We have slowly grown more and more numb so we don't understand what the world should be like. I have to tell you, you know, I live in Israel. And, you know, after the first intifada, the second intifada. So you say, oh, it's really good. You know, there's, there hasn't been any bus bombings in a long time. You know, look at this. We've gone almost several days without a tractor attack. 
you know, when that's already considered a good day. Hey, it's a great day today. I went out and nobody took a tractor and rammed it into my car. Oh, Hashem. What a great life. You understand? We're missing what the world could be. But we've never seen it. We don't even understand it. We settle for so little. They tell a story about this king who was upset at his son and he kicked him out of the palace. Now, obviously princes aren't you know, necessarily able to make it in the real world, right? Prince Charles in England. Whenever he has to fill out a form, what is your profession? It's waiting for my mother to die. You understand? So I, I can't wait to be king. You know what I mean? And that's it. That's his whole life. His whole life is just sitting, waiting. Is she still alive? Oh, man. You know, like, I want to be king, and that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So this poor prince gets kicked out. He doesn't know how to make a living. He doesn't have any professions. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And he gets more and more destitute. And he's finally so far from being a prince, he's just lying in the street. And the king feels bad for him, and he sends his most trusted advisor. And he comes to him, and he says, the king says that he would like to grant you a wish. Do you have a wish? And he looks up at him, and he says, yes, I'm so cold, I wish I had a winter coat. And he says to him, you fool, you could have... The, the, become the prince again. You could say, yes, I want my father to forgive me and take me back into the palace. I want to be a prince and have the greatest of everything. But you can't, you're thinking so small. So most of us think small. You know? Most of us think small. That's why when we daven, when we pray, we think so small. You know? I'll tell you a Hasidish story. I'm not a Hasid, so I will do the best I can. Hasidim tell it with this sort of like, you know, Hasid... Cadence, which I'm not so good at. I'm going to do the best I can. It was in the town of Badichev. <laughs> and the Rebbe, Rebbe Levitzik of Badichev, he was called Nidre Knight in the synagogue. And called Nidre. And of course, they're waiting for the signal from the Rebbe. And they're going to go and take out all of the Sifrei Torah and all of the elders of the community will stand around and uh, begin Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre. Very important moment. And the Rebbe's not giving the signal. And it's getting late. Even for Hasidim. You know what I'm saying? So they don't know what to do. They're getting a little nervous. You know? So, uh, so finally the Shamish, the servant of the, you know, who serves the, the, the Rebbe, he says, Rebbe, is there a problem? He says, Yosela, the tail is not here. They look around, he says, you're right, the tail is not here. Should I go and get him? Yeah, go and get him. So he runs to the outskirts of town to the little shack, and he's knocking on the door, Yosla, Yosla. And Yosla comes to the door, and he's still in his pajamas. He says, Yosla, what are you doing? It's, it's Yom Kippur, and everybody's in shul, and everybody's in synagogue, they're all waiting for you. And he says, I'm not coming. He says, what do you mean you're not coming? I'm on strike. So what do you mean you're on strike? It's Yom Kippur, you can't be on strike. You better get to synagogue, or you'll be struck. What do you mean strike? You know, he says, tell the rabbi. I'm not coming unless he gives me a machzer, right? The special prayer book that we use for Yom Kippur, or I'm not coming. He says, I'll tell him, you get dressed. And he rushes through town, and everybody's, hey, there's a little you know, excitement going on. What's going on? We see there's something happening. And he runs over to the rabbi, and he says, Rabbi, Yesla says he's not coming. Unless you get him, promise to give him a machzer. And he says, tell him I'll give it to him. It's okay. And he runs back and Yusla is dressed. He grabs by the arm. They rush into shul. The rabbi gives him the machsa. He goes to his seat. They give a bang. And they start. They take out the Sifri Torah. And it's a whole powerful prayer service. But out of everybody's, the corner of everybody's eye, they're looking at the Yusla. They're looking at the rabbi. There's something going on here. They don't know what it is. Finally, at the end of service, everyone's supposed to go home. No one's going home. They all know they're in the middle of a Hasidic story and they want to see how it ends. You understand? You know, <laughs> how often you get to actually be in one, you know? So the Rebbe says, Yosla, what happened? He says, um, and he sees the whole town leaning in, you know. <laughs> he says, all right, I'll tell you. You know, you all know me here. I've been the tailor in this town my whole life. And I, I raised two healthy boys and I got them married. They moved away. And I had my wife and I had my home with the shop downstairs, and I was making a good living, and I had my money for my old age, and for my, for my savings, and I, I said, my life couldn't be better. And then my wife died. It was so devastating, but I said, you know what? God's been good to me, I had a good life together, I'll be okay, I'll be okay. And then, a few years ago, I developed arthritis, 
It was very hard for me to sew. And when I did, it didn't come out so good. And I lost a lot of customers. But I said, okay, God's been good to me. I'll manage. I'll, 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 I'll do okay. And then my eyesight started to go. And it took me a long time just to thread a needle. And with the arthritis and my poor eyesight, the work was coming out very slowly and very poorly. I lost most of my customers. I was making a, a meager living, but I didn't want to touch my savings because I needed that for my old age. You know, and I still had my house. And I, I said, it'll be okay. And just before Rosh Hashanah, we had the fire burn down my house. I had everybody's clothes, you know, before the high holidays where you know, it was all backed up in my house because it was taking me so long. I had to pay back everybody their clothes for my savings. I was destitute. And I moved to the little shack on the outside of town, and I said, it's okay, I'll be all right, I'll be okay. And then this morning I woke up and I said, I don't have a moxa. I don't know the prayers by heart. I can't go to Shon Yom Kippur. And I turned to God and I said, you won't even give me a moxa? You won't even give me a moxa? That's it, I'm going on strike. And when the Rebbe said he'd give me a moxa, so I said, okay, I'll come back. And everyone starts to nod. And the Rebbe gives a terrible sigh, and he says, Yasala, Yasala, you had God by the throat, and all you asked for was a buck? You could have asked for the redemption, and you would have gotten it. But who thinks big? We think small. It's okay. We're used to this. I have no personal experience in this, but I was told that the correct way to cook a lobster is not to take a lobster and plunge it into boiling hot water because then it gets tough or it emits something that's, you know, it's not good. So, so I was told. You're supposed to put it into a pot of cold water. And then you put it on a very low flame. And the lobster says, eh, it's not bad. Not bad. Make it a little hotter. It's okay. It's a little warm. It's not bad. And you keep making it a little warmer, and by the time the lobster figures out what you're doing, he's already cooked. <laughs> and that's where we are today. The water's turned up so hot, and we say, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be an optimist, you know. What's an optimist? He's a guy who falls off the Empire State Building, and after 50 floors says, so far, so good. He's <laughs> an optimist, you know what I mean? And he's plunging down. And we just don't appreciate it. We don't appreciate it. So that's one aspect, is that if we really understood how great the world could be and what we lost and what we could get, of course we'd want the temple. Of course we'd want the base of Mikdash. But there's another aspect. The Mishnah in Tainus, the Talmud writes that there were five tragedies that happened on the 9th of Av. The spies came back and brought their evil report and the decree was made that all of that generation would die out in the desert. Terrible. They all died out in the desert. None of them got to go into Israel. The first temple was destroyed. Terrible. The second temple was destroyed. Terrible. The city of Betar was killed, out, wiped out. It says the blood flowed like a river for almost three kilometers. Terrible. And they plowed the temple mount like a field. Okay, the first temple, millions of people were killed. The second temple, millions of people were killed. Betar, millions of people were killed. The entire generation died out. Millions of people died on the desert. They plowed the temple mount like a field. Okay, I'm sorry they did that. But let's keep a perspective. Is it up there with everything else? And this is the second aspect of Tisha B'Av that we have to understand. It says three people saw the temple mount. The three forefathers. I know it's a little bit of an oxymoron, three forefathers. Okay. Anyway, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. It says, Abraham saw the mountain from the distance, and he saw it as a mountain. He saw the har. He saw a mountain. When it comes to Yitzchak, it says, He went out into the field. When Yaakov gets to the temple mount, he says, This is the house of God. And he saw it as a house. What's the difference if you see it as a house, you see it as a field, or you see it as a mountain? A mountain is spectacular when seen from a distance. I was up in the Catskills, and as we were driving on Route 17, you see the mountains. Spectacular when seen from a distance. When you are on the mountain itself, it's really not that impressive. You see a couple of trees around you, but it doesn't give you that sense of grandeur. A mountain you can only appreciate from a distance. But it's just a mountain. You know, you can't do much with a mountain. You go to see a mountain, you climb the mountain, that's about it. A field is something different altogether. 
a field you can make money from. That's already something we can relate to. Now, most of us are not farmers today, for the most part. We're not going to live in an agricultural you know, lifestyle. But when you had a field, a field was how you made your money. You planted your field, you brought in your crops, you sold them in market, you made money. That was the best way to make money in a, you know, agrarian society. You made your money from your field. But a house is something altogether different. You don't live in a field. You might set yourself up a little hut to work there, but you don't live in a field. You live in a house. And Yitzchak brought our relationship with God up from the level of looking at it from a distance and being inspired to one where we can do business with God. We interact with God. But Yaakov took it another level. He made it into a home. He made it into a house. We lived with God. And this is something that is so hard for us to understand. Because when they destroyed the house, that was bad. But when they plowed it, they turned it back into a field. You know what that means? That means when we had a house... We lived with God like a husband and a wife. We had an intimate relationship with God. Can you imagine what that means? No, you can't. Read Shir Shirim. Read the Song of Songs. It's unbelievable. It's a love poem between two lovers. That was the Jewish people and God. It was passionate. I was in a synagogue in England. I've been in other synagogues like this, but in England they just do it so much better. There are these big, giant, cavernous synagogues, and your feet echo as you walk. Boom, 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 boom. And you sit in the pew. And the rabbi, or the reverend, makes his way to the podium and says, You are in a house, 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 of the Lord, 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 Lord. Please maintain, maintain the decorum. And everyone has this sense of awe. Oh, oh. Well, that's nice, I guess. If you want to look at God like that. There was a wonderful theological work that came out, I think it must have been about 20 years ago, called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you happen to have seen it. And at one point, God appears to them, and they all turn away. And God says, what are you doing? And they said, averting my eyes. He says, well, don't. Every time I talk to people, it's forgive me this, and I'm not worthy. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Oh, Lord, I am so lowly in thy midst, for thou shalt surely knowest my pain. For I hath much pain, for I hath a lift that is just terrible. <laughs> So depressing. And then there's looking at him like a father and a child to a father. But that's not the ideal. The ideal is two lovers in an embrace. That's the way it was supposed to be. And when you opened up the curtain to the Holy of Holies and you saw those two cherubs entwined, that's how we're supposed to relate to God, with an embrace. And we don't have that today. Not only did we lose the house, it was plowed like a field. Now we do business with God. God, you wash my back, I wash yours. Okay, I'll pray, you give me, we work it out. I'll make an arrangement. That's okay, we do business. I understand. I put the money in the bushka, I get the blessing. Is this clear? We all understand each other. And that's why so many people approach it from that point of view. You know? So a guy you know, goes to work and he buys himself a new Jaguar. And he says, oh, did you get the, rabbi, did, did you get the priest to bless it? He says, what do you mean? He says, well, I, bring the, I brought my Jaguar to the church and the priest sprinkled holy water on it and blessed it. He says, oh, that's great. And he goes to the rabbi. He says, rabbi, bless my Jaguar. He says, no, no, we don't do that in Judaism. We don't bless cars. <laughs> we, don't, we don't do this. He says, rabbi, this is very important to me. We don't have any holy water. We don't have any blessings for cars. Forget about it. He says, rabbi, I'll give $5,000 to the rabbi fund. He says, I'll think of something. <laughs> Next day, he invites all his people to a ceremony. The rabbi comes out with a white jacket and cuts a quarter inch off the tailpipe. <laughs> it's still moving around the room. I know, I know. It's going gonna... to take a while. It's a subtle one. You have to really work on it, you know? 
A guy brings his dog to synagogue. He says, Rabbi, I, w- I want to I wanna give my dog uh, a bar mitzvah. And he says, no, we don't have that here. You know? He says, no, it's very important to me. This is, he's like a child to me. He says, no, 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 we don't, we don't have a bar mitzvah. We don't even have a bark mitzvah. You know what I mean? Can't do anything for you. I can't help you. He says, Rabbi, I give $5,000 to the rabbi's fund. Oh, you didn't tell me the dog was Jewish. <laughs> oh, if it wasn't so painful, it'd be funny. Oh, yeah, I'll never forget when I was giving my bar mitzvah, you know, my father came to see the rabbi and slipped him a 50 like he was a waiter. Here you go, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Terrible. I didn't know rabbis took tips. I knew Moylan took tips. I didn't know rabbis took tips. <laughs> that one's going with the Jaguar. What's going on with the Jaguar? <laughs> In any event, you see, it's still moving. It's still moving. I know. Yeah. It's one of the problems when I tell jokes on uh, Friday night in England because the next day in Shul they're all laughing. But, um, <laughs> but do you understand the best we can imagine at this point is doing business with God? We work out an arrangement. But to have an intimate, loving relationship? You know, what was it like when there was a temple? I'm talking about the second temple, not the first temple. The first temple had many, many more miracles. The second temple. It meant that you didn't just walk into Jerusalem. There was a place outside in Jerusalem where you would stay and you'd meditate and clear your thoughts. Because you went into Jerusalem and Jerusalem was a holy city. Everybody conducted themselves with holiness. You know, people only ate offerings. You know, the majority of the meat consumed were offerings. That's why when you go and you look at these excavations, it's like, you know, two houses and four mikvahs. You know, because everybody kept going to the mikvah. You had to go to the mikvah before you could eat this stuff. That's where they used to wear robes. Didn't pay to get dressed. You know what I mean? You were in the mikvah, and you go to eat lunch. And you go, oh, I forgot. Go back in the mikvah, put on the robe again, you know. And then we go into the mikvah all the time. It was an unbelievable thing. They were living in this holiness. And in the middle was this giant mountain. And there was the temple, twice as big as that dome that's temporarily there. And there was a cloud above it. And as you got closer, you felt God's presence. I don't know if you can imagine what that means. I can't. That means the closer you got, you felt God as clearly as if you saw him. As if you were looking at God. That's how close it was. It was real to you. You felt it. It wasn't a theory. I didn't need somebody to prove it to me. It was real. You could feel this experience. <sighs> so, Corbanos. I remember hearing this Reform rabbi and this Orthodox rabbi on the radio in Israel. And they said, do you believe that uh, Tisha B'Av is still relevant today? And the reform rabbi said, no, it's not relevant today. I look around and I see Israel being rebuilt and I see people living here and I see the Jews have come back and now we don't need a temple. And the rabbi said, yes, yes, the orthodox rabbi, yes, because since the temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of meaningless hatred, and we still have that hatred, so Tisha B'Av still has a message for us. So he says, so rabbi, you're looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple? Yes, with animal sacrifices. And you could just hear the rabbi go, you know. And I listened to it and I said, oh my gosh, that could have been me. Because it's real hard to say, yes, I can't wait to bring the little goat to the temple and slit its throat and get the blood and walk, you know, and throw it on and cut it up and bring it up on the altar and burn the parts and, yeah. Something about it that's not so terribly appealing. So I found, you know, it's very hard. The hardest question to answer is the question you haven't answered for yourself. And I sat down to really work it out. Why? What, what is it about it? And six months later, sure enough, I was at a question and answer thing, and ra- someone raised their hand and says, Rabbi, what about animal sacrifices? I said, what about them? <laughs> I threw them off completely, because <laughs> I don't think he even knew what the question was. It just... Seemed like it would really annoy a rabbi, you know. So he says, well, uh, uh, you're killing animals. I said, are you a vegetarian? He says, no. I said, how do you think they get the meat? They don't go over and ask him, listen, you got a spare rib? You know what I mean? Like, you know. So they got to kill him, you know. So he says, yeah, but I'm not there when it happens. I said, oh, that's the problem. No problem. You can appoint a hit Kohen to take out the cow field. You don't have to be there. It's not a problem. So the guy was totally lost because he knew that I was supposed to gag, you know. I said, I guess really your question is, is there a purpose to it? Is there a benefit to it? Uh, yeah. Okay, that's a good question. So I'll tell you what it is. 
I'll tell you, to my, to my mind, it's, it's really powerful if you understand it the right way. You know, one of the problems, of course, is translation. Korban, we translate it sacrifice. We're sacrificing something to God, you know. <clears throat> Korban means lekarev, to come close. So every Friday, this husband used to bring for his wife this beautiful bouquet of flowers, and she'd put it in this beautiful crystal vase right next to where she'd light candles. And they had a five-year-old son who would watch this, and he was so moved by this that he also wanted to bring flowers for his ima. You know, so he goes outside to pick flowers as only a five-year-old can, some dandelions, some weeds, you know, some of those flowers dripping pollen, you know, a little grass to round it out, and says, look, Ima, I brought you flowers just like Abba. So really, the Ima would like to throw this in the garbage, but she understands that the little boy is doing it out of this tremendous love, so you don't really put this in a crystal vase because it's not going to look so nice. So you get a styrofoam cup and you arrange it in a little styrofoam cup and you put that styrofoam cup right next to the crystal vase and the little boy's heart was bursting with pride because he was able to bring flowers just like Abba did and so it went week after week after week until as we all know it becomes rote and one day the little boy's outside playing with his friends on Friday and says oh no I gotta get my mother flowers and he runs over and grabs a handful of weeds and runs into the house and throws it on the table and says here, Mom, you wanted flowers, I got your flowers. <laughs> so the mommy says, you know, I tell you the truth, Abba gets me flowers. I don't want you to have to trouble yourself. I thought you wanted to, but now that I see it's a big deal, just forget about it. And she brushes it into the garbage, and she sadly crumbles the styrofoam cup and throws it away. Now, if the little kid has a brain in his head, he understands he just lost something. Because I had a chance to be able to do something that was so much greater than me. And I was given that opportunity only because I wanted to so much. So we come to God, God, the infinite source of the universe, who created everything from nothing. And we say, oh, look, God, I brought you a sheep. A sheep. How nice. You know, um, why don't I build you a temple, and you'll bring the sheep over there. Okay. And we'll bring the sheep over there. Right, that's good. And, and we used to bring it every single day. The Jewish people would bring, in the morning and the afternoon, we'd bring a sheep. And we'd bring it on the altar. And we were so happy because we were bringing this to God. And it took us about 850 years. And it became rote. And we say, okay, God, you want a sheep? Here's a sheep. And God said, that's okay. I've got lots of sheep. And if I run out, I can always make more. So why don't you keep your sheep? And he took the temple, and he crumbled it up, and he tossed it away. And that's where we are today. And if we would ever turn around like that little boy and say to the mommy, no, no, but I, I want to bring the flowers. I, I guess I forgot, you know, for a minute, what a great opportunity I had. It's really important to me. It's meaningful to me. I want to lick karev. I want to come close. That's what I want to do. But we forget, and with each passing year, there's another layer and another layer until it becomes an archaeological dig to try to be able to find something. The world is not the world it's supposed to be. It would be the way it's supposed to be if there was a base of Mikdash. It means that there'd be no, there'd be no pain and no suffering. And I have to tell you, I can't speak for you, but there's too much pain and suffering in the world. And you have to go to too many people who are sick and too many people whose, whose financial situation is in crisis and too many people whose family situations are in crisis and so much illness and too many problems. And that could all go away. It could all go away. But besides that, says Rav Tzadik HaKoyim, one of the great uh, Hasidic thinkers, he says, you notice all the Gemaras that describe the destruction of the temple are in a Gemara called Gitin. That's the Gemara that talks about the laws of divorce. Because we're separated from God. We want to be close. So when a person says to me, okay, well, you know, hey, he'll come. Maybe it'll be a month, maybe it'll be six months, maybe it'll be two years. What does it make? I don't know. If you really love somebody and you'd been away from them for 10 years, that last 
That last day can make a big difference. Nevertheless, a month. Nevertheless, a year. If you knew what it was to be close to someone you loved, do you want to really put that off? And how much more tragedy do we need just because we don't know how bad the tragedy is? But you think the people in Auschwitz were saying, no, the Americans on the way, it's another two days, three days, what's the big deal? If you had a chance to get out, you get out now. We just don't know what we're missing. And the Tells the Rosh Hashiva said, it's not that the Mashiach is going to come and the world is going to be the same way except we'll have a temple and we'll live in Israel. He says, imagine a world where no one could see, ever. So you'd set up the whole world differently. The way people got married, the way people did business, the way people ate. Everything would be different if everyone was blind. And then one day, everyone woke up and they could see. You wouldn't just go on with the world the way it is. It would be a different world. That's what it's going to be like. We're going to live a different existence. We're going to understand. And us, we're in the Ikfasad the Mashiach. Ikfasad the Mashiach is from a Russian Ekev, heal. The heel is a very insensitive part of the body. It's a lot of dead skin. You could stick a needle in it, you don't feel it too much. That's where we are today. Another tragedy. Another happiness. We don't know the difference. We've never really celebrated and we've never really cried. We say when the redemption will come, then our mouth will be filled with happiness, with laughter. We'll see what it is to laugh. You'll hear in the streets of Jerusalem the sound of bride and a groom. We have brides and grooms now, but we don't know how to celebrate. We don't know what it is to be really alive and to be happy. We've grown so thick. And we just accept like that lobster as they turn the heat up a little bit more, a little bit more. And we don't even realize what we're missing. They tell a famous story about these, these three soldiers who were there when they liberated the Western Wall. Two of them came from an irreligious kibbutz, and one of them was a religious soldier. And when they got to the Western Wall, one of them ran up the religious soldier, and he started crying as he touched the stones. And all of a sudden, one of the kibbutzniks started crying, and his friend said, what are you crying about? He says, I'm crying because I've got nothing to cry about. I don't even realize I'm missing anything. How sad. How sad. I'll never forget, I did a discovery seminar many years ago. It must have been about 20 years ago. At the end, you would go around the circle, and you'd ask everybody one word to describe how they enjoyed the experience. And there was this one guy, you know, people said it was nice, it was educating, it was discovering, you know, all these clever little things, you know. And there was this one guy, he was a big, muscular guy with tattoos, you know, and, you know, chains, and, you know, and a tough-looking guy, you know, and he said, Angry. I said, well, that's it, I'm dead. You know what I mean? You know? And then you go around the circle and everybody explains and he says, I'm so angry that I have so much in my heritage, so much Judaism, so much meaning, and no one ever told me about it. What a tragedy. Imagine how much of us miss out on so much, you know? And when the Rav is speaking about how down the road there's a high school filled with kids who could find out about this, except they don't have any money to be able to go out and reach them. What a pity. What a pity. Just because we don't have enough. And imagine if we wouldn't be able to do these shiram because people aren't there to help. What a pity. You know, we have to understand. We have to wake up. We have to feel again. It says, we'll take away our heart of stone and give ourselves a heart of flesh, says the Navi, says the Prophet. That's what we have to do. You know, the first step to redemption is we have to start to feel again. We have to come to life. We have to learn how to laugh and how to cry and how to care and how to at least feel like we're missing something. And if not, when the day of tragedy comes around and we sit down on the floor, at least we'll shed a tear because we realize we don't even know what to cry about. And if we could just learn that the world could be a better place and I could have a relationship with God where I could feel it, for real. I could feel something. There's a girl in the Bay Yerushalayim. It's supposed to be a way to be able to get something. There's certain things called skulot. Well, you do something, you get a skula, right? it helps you get there, a shortcut. 
So one is if you go and you pray for something for 40 days nonstop at the Western Wall, it's supposed to be a good way to get something. So this girl was going there because she wanted to pray with real concentration. She went to feel it. And she stopped after day 27. She said she'd open up the prayer book and start to pray and she'd start to shake and the tears would fall down her cheeks and she said it was too intense for me. I couldn't handle it. Imagine having a Jewish experience that's so intense that it's hard to handle. Imagine having a feeling where you can laugh and you can and you can live and you could and you could look at life the way it's supposed to be. That's what's waiting for us. If we know how to cry, then we know how to laugh. If we know how to appreciate what we're missing, then we can get it back. Please, God. Thank you very much.